electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight, one top strategist says he is all in on this market. Jonathan Golub of Credit Suisse will be here to tell us what will take us to new highs. Plus, it was a wild weekend for Tesla CEO Elon Musk, on Twitter at least. Is he putting his SEC settlement at risk? What can stop him now? But we start off with... The final countdown to Netflix earnings. The stock under pressure down today, adding to its losses. Now down about 5% since Disney announced its new streaming platform just last week. The stock had been streaming higher this year, up 30%, but most of those gains were in the first two weeks of the year. And it's been relatively flat since that huge move off the low. So as Netflix gets ready to report tomorrow after the bell, will it be the catalyst the market is looking for? What tone will it set for the rest of tech, particularly growthy tech? Guy Dami, what do you say? Four questions there. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, can you, you know, Netflix reply can because okay. it's Monday and I'm fired up. All right, we good. were together this morning on the Squawk, squawk on the Squawk Box, box downstairs. You know, it's funny. You go squawk back January friend. 17th when Netflix reported the stock. I think closed at 350. Today the stock basically closes at 350. It's exactly where it was last quarter. The great part about last quarter were international ads. I think 7.3. The street was in the sixes. Stock went lower. What my what my what's my point? Well. You know, we keep bouncing up against these levels to the upside, 375, seemingly failing. The only reason I would be bullish Netflix going into this quarter is because maybe this Disney announcement over the last couple weeks has Reed Hastings thinking, and maybe they will pull Rabbit out of the hat. Short of that, though, I think the stock pulls back tomorrow. What do you think, Dan? What is the implied... Uh, about 28 bucks in either direction. That's huh. the implied movement, okay. and which is something that the stock has been moving, you know, over the last 10 quarters or so. Uh, I'll just say this. It's really interesting. You know, we know that there's this huge spread between U.S. net ads, which last quarter about one and a half million, this quarter about the same ex expectation, and then overseas we're doing seven, eight million. At some point in the next year or so, we may see U.S. ads just go flat, right? So as people get more into this Disney um, thing, we may see mm -hmm. that churn pick up a little bit, and I think that's going to be a very monumental thing for this stock when that finally happens, that massive saturation here in the U.S., and then they will know whether they have a real competitor in Disney or not. There had always been an argument that Netflix has pricing power. It's one of these magical companies you pay a dollar extra. It's getting to the point now where maybe that dollar extra, maybe you choose to have a Disney bundle instead of paying that dollar extra to Netflix? Well, I, I, you know, I, I might, but I, I don't think I'm indicative of the market. Mm -hmm. I, I think to what extent are people going to have room for two or three services? I think some people believe there's room for two or three services. Um, interesting, though, that finally, you know, now that Disney is out with this, we're starting to assess uh, the vulnerability of Netflix in the moat. Netflix, it, for its part, is not doing anything uh, to have investors more worried than they were yesterday. The company's executing their content continues to grow. Right now, actually, the international subs are an <laughs> impressive story. Uh, but, but if you think about where the valuation is, it comes back to that. It's a company that's burning a lot of cash, hasn't proven it's profitable. It's had to spend at all costs to stay ahead of the competition. And the competition is closing fast. And, and 
To me, you know, Disney's, uh, I'll repeat what I said last week because it's worth repeating. They're the first of the legacy players to really, I think, punch back. Uh, they're actually competing on the same kind of fang landscape. This is an argument, by the way, that Citibank made as well. In other words, you have a case where think of all the big cap, mega cap tech that's pushed around the legacy industries. Pick the industry, pick retail, pick media. Um, when media started to get disrupted, it looked like media was cowering and that the valuations were going lower. Disney's a $220 billion company with the best content in the world. Um, if they are competing with, Nas with, with, with Netflix, at some point, you have to ask yourself, What's the multiple Netflix should be trading on? And therefore, is, should Disney be a lot higher? Or I think it's more that Netflix has to come down to the pack. Right. Or both. I mean, you could make the argument that both, because there's such a wide Kasman valuation. I mean, to me, I don't know. I, it, this, Netflix is not a this quarter story, right? I guess if they report good earnings, that will, you know, the stock's been under pressure. Maybe you'll see a nice run. If they start to report weaker subs, I think people will be sort of freaked out, even though nothing's happened yet, right? Even though Disney, the product isn't there yet. I think the tectonic plates are really shifting in this business, though. And at, at this valuation, I, I, I wouldn't be, I can't, couldn't be long Netflix. Here's a question. I mean, Netflix, the, the move in Netflix, as we pointed out, happened really at the very beginning of the year, and then it sort of went flat. So is it indicative of what is going on in the market and, and what sorts of stocks are favored in this market environment as we approach record highs again? Do you want to be in these high valuation stocks, or is there a question around them at this point? No, Maybe a cycle into more of the value area. It's, you know, I look at Netflix and say to myself, you know, it's, it traded up, basically made its way up to that 375 level, didn't like it, it's been pulling back. You know, the broader market obviously hasn't done that. Although the broader market seems to be stuck at this level, you haven't seen the rollover. Could Netflix lead to the rollover of the broader market? Perhaps. You did see that back in the fall, if you recall. It did same thing did happen. Netflix reported a fantastic quarter, if you remember. Stock initial reaction was higher, spent the rest of the month going lower. The, the broader market dragged down. I'm not suggesting it was causality, but it did happen. So could it happen again? Yes. I'll say this again. The only reason I would like Netflix is, you know, just read Hastings, look and see what's going on with Disney, and say something that will further spur this. That's the only reason I could see Netflix breaking through to the upside. From a, from a market's dynamic, though, I mean, Netflix has been trying to get back to its all-time high levels of June. It's, it's not like Netflix. The 40% sell-off into year-end was a lot more than every other company, and that was after it came down from, from probably another 10% higher. So it's 20% after the highs, after having a massive rally back. We're talking about that, but this is a rally that's back from being probably one of the most uh, one of the most beat up stocks going into the year end. So when I look at Netflix, to me at this point, first of all, from a volatility and a risk reward perspective, again, what kind of a stock do you want to own? Dan talks about it's got a seven percent implied vol in tomorrow's print. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of vol wrapped up in this stock for a company that you really think that there's a lot of upside in a company that's running at a multiple this high with competition bearing down on it. Yeah, I'll just make one other point. You know, investors actually really like that price increase that they announced uh, on that last. Mm -hmm quarter that may be the last price increase this company is ever able to do on a monthly basis if really you think really about it, it Wait, are you making a prediction well but think about this you get your cable bill do you pay more than 15 or 16 dollars for hbo showtime or any of this stuff no you don't and you know when you talk about how many services you're going to have as a cord cutter you're going to have three or four or five like you do on your cable bundle okay so your your bundle is going to look really similar it's just going to say hulu netflix disney plus esp you know that's what it's going to say and showtime and hbo and all those other stuff are 
going to be a part of it. So to me, I, I just don't think this company is ever going to be able to raise uh, pricing again. And I think it's great that they did. Don't forget that Thanos snap that we had of all the Disney content. That's happening in 2019. So at some point, we're going to see churn. We're going to see U.S. ads go flat. I think that automatic billing has changed what that price increase is. I think a lot of people have that charge to the credit card every month and they don't even pay attention unless it goes up five bucks. It's not going to be a blip on their radar. But back to what Reed Hastings can do. You think he's got a, a rabbit to pull out of the well, hat I, I don't here? Know. I mean, just I, because I, Disney I, I don't know that, but you got to believe that I, clearly he's watching and seeing what's happened with Disney over the last couple. I mean, Disney had a $23 billion in market cap in a 24-hour period. That's a pretty staggering number. It comes in the wake of basically them taking on Netflix head-on. So I do think he has to address it. I just don't know well, I don't know if he it, what it will take to get There's the nothing to do right now. They could yeah. buy Spotify. They could go horizontal here. They could yeah. actually, you know, add some different offerings. They could do some live sports. There's a lot of things that they could do to make that offering stickier and more interesting because we know that their catalog x the disney stuff is not great their original content is less than eight percent of their viewing hours so unless you want to go back and watch 1983 reruns of you know porkies or whatever you were watching back then don't you know don't yeah. transvert your own stuff onto other Sorry. people <laughs> what, what i'll say is we just you know i heard on, on the lead-in from closing bell they started talking about game of thrones and the amount of numbers and i know in my household that was on i mean think about i don't know how people get their hbo but you can't tell me that there aren't other properties out there and again look at AT&T and the Time Warner properties and the sum of the parts but if you're talking about pure content it's not Netflix I don't think and I, I, I give them a lot of high marks for what they've been able to do but I think there's other places that are pure content plays that are much more undervalued relative to uh, you got to wonder when you, if we look back at this period are we going to say was Netflix the cable package of the 90s, where it had every single channel that you want, every single kind of content you want, all the series, all the movies, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's everything to everybody. And we move away from that model and go into skinnier bundles, like ESPN+, Plus, like Disney+, Plus, like, right. you know, whatever Nat Geo is going to come out with or Discovery Channel is going to come out with. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me that it, it evolves that way. I just, I don't see how competitors like a Disney cannot make a dent here, a meaningful dent. Well, our next guest says no matter what happens with earnings season, he is all in on this market. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub, chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Jonathan, great to have you with us. What's your price target for the year now? Um, Thirty twenty-five. Which when thirty twenty-five? Put, put it out. It sounded so exciting, and right. now it's like now four it's, percent. It's, it's now not it's only so. 4%. Are you going to revise higher because I mean you want to go all in? You want to make the case to go all in for four percent upside? Yeah, I mean the, the truth is, I think that the, the real story here is I think that the market is not. To be constrained by relatively modest earnings, and that the surprise this year is that you're going to have okay earnings, an okay economic backdrop, and stocks are going to continue to re rate anyway, which is what's been happening. And I think investors have been offsides on this because the earnings aren't spectacular and, and the economic data is not spectacular. Um, but yet, what you have is the Fed is out of the game, recession risk looks like it's off the table, Trump isn't fighting on China, the volatility is down. And that backdrop is pushing stocks higher. So is there a specific catalyst? It just sounds like you're thinking everything's going to be kind of okay, and so therefore it'll just be a drift. Well, if there's, if there's a catalyst in the near term, it's that all of this conversation about an earnings recession, I think, is going to prove to be way off, off the mark. I mean, right now, the consensus view is that you have like a 2.5% um, you know, contraction in earnings. First of all, first quarter beats tend to be the largest, about 5%. Mm -hmm. 
but more importantly, the average company or the median company is, is about 500 basis points stronger in terms of earnings growth than that weighted average number, partially because of taxes, partially because of oil prices. So I think that a portfolio manager is looking, chances are that the average company's portfolio is going to be up 7 to 8% on earnings, and I think that they're going to be saying, <coughs> what earnings recession, and that's the way it's going to feel. But there's no question some of these big tech names are a drag, energy's a drag, and taxes, obviously, year over year. It's, it's great that you're bullish, and that's, that's your prerogative, but what's the bear case? Because I know you examine what can go wrong under this scenario. Yeah, I mean, the biggest bear case is probably that we got you know, lulled into complacency on inflation. I mean, one of the things I think that's driving the market higher is that wage inflation actually came down, consumer inflation came down, and there's a reason why everybody thinks the Fed is out, because it looks like this cycle is going to go on forever and inflation risk is off. If all of a sudden that reverses, that's probably the worst thing can happen. And if I look at the earnings data, I mean, there's a number of, we were talking about this before, Dan, there's a number of these big tech names that actually have some hair on them in terms of, of their cost line, and there's a, there's a possibility. Now, do I think that this, this quarter they're going to be a beat? I absolutely do, but maybe the expense is a little bit higher. Maybe you want to rotate, not out of tech, but towards mid-cap tech away from the big caps, which, which would kind of change the tone of the market. And so that's the bear scenario. Where, where could you be wrong to the, that you're under, underestimated where can the market go? What would be the most likely You know, the, the one it? area that, that I kind of can't get my head around is the, the, all of the optimists are saying that there's going to be this magical second half rally because China's pouring on the kerosene, that Europe is going to, is like, is like, you know, all set up to, to, to run to the upside. And we just get surprised that all of these bearish earnings estimates and the leading indicators and the PMIs are just way too negative. Do I buy that argument? I'm not sure I do. But if, if there was an upside scenario, it's that China actually lights up some of this stuff. And we just look at, like, you know, the European banks, for example. You get a pickup in activity, <coughs> and these things are going to rip. What uh, sectors do you want to be in in this environment that you're seeing? You know, right now, I, you know, again, if you, let's say if you look one to three months out, I think the big story is the hedge funds are still underexposed. Volatility came down. The hedge funds, because they got so beaten up in December, were a little bit reluctant to fully re-risk. And I think that that means this is going to feel very pro-cyclical. So let's, you know, if you look within tech, it's hardware, it's semis. But as we move through the year, I think that that cyclical trade rolls over. So I think that as the year progresses, it's going to be more like software over hardware. I think healthcare, which has had decent fundamentals, but has been a dog on performance, I could actually see that turning around as we move past this kind of, you know, this beta trade in, in the back half of the year. Okay. We're almost at the back half of the year, by the way. We are. <laughs> I mean, it's not too much longer before this thing rolls over um, in terms of the sector's trades, not the markets. Right. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you. Good to see you. Jonathan Gollop of Credit Suisse. Tim, how well, do you trade this? Yeah, what's interesting, and I was looking at Jonathan's numbers. He sent around some charts, and basically the consensus is at 8.8% EPS growth in the fourth quarter. He's actually at 39 so um, a more moderate run. And if you think about where people have priced the last couple of years, everybody thought second half of 2018 was going to be the strong part. They knew the the first half was going to be tough. It seems to be the same setup here, and it could also be wrong because I think by as we get in the second half, we've either blasted the last of whatever kind of liquidity juice we can, or we actually have the Fed back in the picture. Something you, to be certain. You added to healthcare today. I did. I bought some Anthem today. I mean, we know managed care has just gotten annihilated over the last few weeks. This just seemed way, way, way overdone. Uh, we'll see in two weeks. I, I don't think earnings will be so indicative of anything, but maybe they'll talk about what they're seeing on the policy front. Okay, we've got some breaking news here on Notre Dame, the fire in Paris. Let's get to Sue Herrera for the latest. Sue.
Melissa, thank you very much. The fire is still uh, basically uncontained at this hour, but we do have a little bit of a glimmer of hope. According to France 24, a spokesman for the Paris firefighters says now the two towers and the main structure of the cathedral have been saved from complete destruction. The flames are starting to wane a bit, but he says that three or four more hours are needed to contain the fire. But it looks like they uh, were able to tamp down the fire that had moved from the main cathedral to the north tower. It looks like they've contained that. And apparently they are going to be able to save some of the cathedral structure, which was the big question. Now, they have evacuated areas around the cathedral in case some of those main walls collapse. So people have been evacuated from their apartments that are in that particular area. They continue to fight the fire, but perhaps a little bit of good news in what has been a devastating day for Paris and indeed the world. Melissa? All right, Sue, thank you. Sue Herrera at the newsroom. Coming up, Tesla CEO Elon Musk having quite the weekend on Twitter, even as he is settling with the SEC over some of his previous tweets. We'll bring you the latest details, plus airlines hitting turbulence, taking down the transports, as it looks like there is no end in sight for Boeing's issues with the 737 MAX plane. We will explain. And later, it's Weed Week on Fast Money. We've got you covered on every angle leading up to the high holiday. That'd be uh, 420. Yeah. First up, a top analyst joins us to explain why Bliss is about to hit the beauty industry. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We were just talking about the streaming wars, and now we've got a news alert on Hulu. Let's get to Julia Borson in Los Angeles with more. Julia. Melissa, that's right. AT&T and Hulu just announced that AT&T will be selling its stake in Hulu back to the company. AT&T's 9.5% stake in the company was valued at $1.43 billion, valuing all of Hulu at $15 billion. Um, AT&T says they will use the proceeds from the transaction to reduce its debt. CEO Randall Stevenson has talked quite a bit about his focus on um, paying down AT&T's debt. Hulu CEO saying they thank AT&T for their support and look forward to collaboration in the future. Now, Melissa here, I think the key thing is, is that we knew AT&T wanted to sell at stake. There was a lot of speculation about whether Disney, which now controls 60 percent of Hulu, would buy that stake or whether NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, which controls 30 percent of Hulu, would buy that stake. Instead, AT&T and Hulu's solution was just to buy that stake directly. So um, that sort of addresses that issue. It means that neither of those, I mean, Disney will still have a controlling share of Hulu, but did not sort of effectively um, increase its share of the company. The most important thing here is that Disney still controls um, the voting, voting shares in Hulu, but there's no sort of change in the ownership structure here because now Hulu itself bought back that 10% from AT&T. Any idea, Julia, on, on what the path forward is for Hulu with nobody actually, I mean, with Disney having the controlling stake, but Comcast having a pretty decent minority stake in the thing, I'm sure both sides would want the whole thing. 
Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I think it's it's been discussed a lot about whether or not Disney would try to buy out NBC Universal. Um, they're certainly in a controlling position there, so I think it's unlikely that NBC Universal would be able to buy out. Um, Disney. I think both of these companies want Hulu to succeed. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how maybe now with just two owners, it'll be a lot easier for Hulu to make the most of its assets and really grow and expand. But I think especially, you know, we just heard last week Bob Iger talk about how he wants to make Hulu and Disney Plus and ESPN Plus sort of easily accessible and even um, potentially bundle them together at a discount. Hulu is really a key part of Disney's strategy here. And we've got to think there must be conversations going on between Disney and NBC Universal mm -hmm. for for Disney to buy out the remaining 30%. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson in Los Angeles. Uh, Tim, which piece of the pie would you go to here? AT&T, Disney, Comcast. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, again, I, I in terms of stock picking, I, I like AT&T here. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I think they've got a very interesting portfolio, some of the parts, blah, blah, blah. People are very concerned about the debt profile. They're worried about the cellular business, but we should love what they're doing in media. Some people think they overpaid for these assets. I don't. Um, I don't think this deal um, means anything for any of these companies. Now to a wild weekend for Tesla CEO Elon Musk on Twitter, even as he works to settle with the SEC over some of his previous tweets. Let's get to Phil LeBeau in Chicago for the details. Phil. Wow, Melissa, were you on Twitter this weekend? If you were, you saw a lot of Elon Musk tweets, and they were about a wide range of subjects. We're not going to go through all of them, but we will focus on two of them that are germane to the Tesla business. Let's start first off with his ongoing uh, description of where things stand between Tesla and Panasonic. Remember, Panasonic, according to reports out of Japan, is freezing its investment in the Gigafactory, which prompted Elon Musk to write, Pana, standing for Panasonic, cell lines at Giga are only 24 gigawatts, approximately 24 gigawatt uh, hours per year and have been a constraint on Model 3 output since July. No choice but to use other suppliers for Powerwall slash Powerpack cells. Tesla won't spend money on more capacity until existing lines get closer to 35 gigawatt per hour, theoretical. You take a look at shares of Tesla. Again, let's point out that this has been an ongoing debate, at least over the last several weeks, last month, between what's going on with Panasonic, its commitment to Tesla, not only here at the Gigafactory in the United States, but also the new Tesla plant that's being built over in China. I don't think this is the end of it as far as uh, the tweets that we might see from Elon Musk or reports regarding Panasonic. Now, let's talk about the other subject that Elon Musk was talking about or tweeting about over the weekend, and it has to do with Tesla's autopilot. He writes, please note that the price of Tesla full-service driving option will increase substantially over time. That was one tweet. Another tweet not long after that said, on April 22nd, Investor Autonomy Day, Tesla will free investors from the tyranny of having to drive their own car. So, Melissa, this sets up a couple of key things to look for from Elon Musk and Tesla over the next week and a half. On Thursday, that is the two-week deadline that the judge in the SEC contempt case set for Elon Musk's attorneys, along with the SEC attorneys, to give her a written report on whether they could work things out in terms of what kind of rules will be established for his communications on Twitter as well as other uh, forms. Autonomous Investor Day, that happens out in California for investors as well as analysts next Monday. And then on the 24th, first quarter earnings. And that's what people are really focused on, Melissa. So it'll be a busy week and a half for Elon Musk and for Tesla. And 
I bet you we'll see a lot of tweets between now and then. <laughs> well, he's already been on fire this weekend, Phil. Um, is the tweet about how many cars he'll make in the next 12 months, is not that not um, sort of digging at the SEC ahead of uh, this deadline? Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't take it that way. I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, okay. I mean, you, you, there are going to be people, and already there are people on social media who are saying he shouldn't be writing anything about about production models or production targets. He's not going to stop. I mean, he he's not putting out something that is way out in left field, Melissa. And so he's the CEO, or he is, you know, he's the CEO of the company. He's not chairman. He's the CEO of the company. Uh, production targets is what he has talked about, and it's germane to the business. And in, and I don't think he's going to stop. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau out in Chicago. I wonder what the SEC thinks about whether or not he's going to stop after the settlement. Isn't is it made. germane to the SEC settlement that he's not tweeting about production? I mean, I think I well, mean, for other CEOs, I think it's relevant. But this is a guy that was told not to tweet and not to tweet about production and not to tweet about uh, some of these numbers that are relevant to the company. And I, you wonder how many of these tweets were vetted supposedly zero. by okay. somebody within the company before right. they were tweeted. Maybe not zero. But, I mean, I get there's a couple issues. After the embarrassment last month over the production numbers, it's kind of shocking to me that he would do this. Although, once he says it, and we've already established, Twitter is a perfectly good forum in mm -hmm. which to announce, I guess, if you're the CEO, you can announce production it, targets. I, to do that in the face of the SEC, I don't really get it. I mean, to me, the, the sort of weekly or every 10-day strategy change is I don't know that's that's sort of telling of a, of a management that's in disarray. How do you trade this stock with all these events lined up? It's the still had out. Yesterday low 247 and a half, 248 on October 5th. It closed that day at 258. That's in the crosshairs now. You know, you get a close through 250 or so, things get really dicey very quickly. So you look at it, series of lower lows, lower highs, good for Tim on top of this thing. But in the next week, it's very hard at this point, given what's transpired, to make a bull case unless you think we've absolutely now made a double bottom and turning higher, which I don't. All right. The transport's getting hit today. Check out trucker J.B. Hunt after hours. The uh, chart master says it could spell more trouble for the market ahead. We will explain. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. I built a real-life Pinterest board. I really wish you could click those. Pinterest is gearing up for its public debut this week. But will the stock be a value trade or a value trap? The traders weigh in. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. And your portfolio might be feeling pretty too. After one top analyst explains why cannabis could be fuel for a $25 billion beauty boom. There's much more Fast Money right after this. It's alarming how charming I feel. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. 
When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story. Asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Turbulence hitting the transports today as the index drops about a percent. The airlines are weighing on the group as more 737 MAX flights get canceled. United Airlines joining American and Southwest in the growing list to announce cancellations through the busy summer travel season. Plus, check out shares of J.B. Hunt falling in the after hours on an earnings miss. So is there trouble brewing in the transports? What do you say, Tim? Well, I, I tell you, I, I look at the transports, look at the chart, look at the, the, the group as a whole, and I'd say absolutely not. I mean, I, I'd say the transports have largely been a part and led some of this move up. If anything, they're a little bit overbought. A day like today, no big deal. Um, on the airlines, you can break down the reality of what some of these MAX 737 cancellations really mean. And for, for airlines, if anything, people tended to believe this was positive for airlines in terms of capacity uh, and where they could actually be raising prices. So um, the market response to this is a little peculiar. I don't think this is changing the fundamentals for the airlines at all right now. I just mentioned that it will be very interesting to see as we get through earnings season. We know that we've had some pre-announcements from some of the airlines, but, you know, there seems to be a bifurcation. You look at the charts. I know Carter's going to look at some of them. The, the rails look great, and they act great, and they were pri at, you know, the prior highs. Uh, but the truckers, a lot of them don't look so great and don't act great. And so to me what's interesting is what is the fundamental read-through when we get earnings? Is there some cross-currents there? And we just don't know yet. All right. According to our next guest, there's a tale of two transport stocks. One looks like a train wreck and the other will drive higher. Chartmaster Carter Worth is over at the plaza to break it down. Carter, what are you looking at? Sure. So uh, let's start with the index itself and then sort of work down. I got one I like, one I don't like. What's interesting, of course, is if you look back uh, since the beginning of data in the 1920s, basically the equity market, as measured by the S&P, has almost doubled the transportation average. But if you were to start your meter from 1980, uh, right around the uh, Ronald Reagan recession, it's actually transports that have been the big winner, almost <coughs> to the tune of double that of the S&P. Um, keep that in mind, and let's just look at a few long-term charts, a few short-term charts, and then drill down into two stocks. Here is uh, the chart from 1980 in logarithmic scale, so it's not a parabolic, uh, which means we can see the drawdowns in the early stage. And what we know, of course, is this is volatility at its very best. I mean, you can see the numbers here, down 34, down 28. This is every single drawdown greater than 25%. And some of them are doozies, down 40, down 47. There's, uh, there's a 50, there's a 61, of course, in 09. And this recent one is relatively modest in the context of some of the great drawdowns in a very cyclical index a recession or not a type index. Anyway, down 26%, and we're trying to get back to the high. What we do know, though, is that over the past three years, the S&P and the transports are virtually identical. A little more beta, you see that the blue line overshoots and undershoots, which would be assumed, but basically uh, the same uh, result. Now, the real issue is this. We know that the equity market itself is back at the former high, and this is a bit slumpish compared to the S&P, and ultimately I do think that that is the risk, that we just never quite uh, make new highs and that you do have a fairly well-formed topping out formation after what was a very big break in trend. And that's a tough spot to be in having thrown back like that and then hitting your head. In any event, let us look at the following. So this is over the past year and a half. You've got a real winner, CSX, and you've got a loser, J.B. Hunt, 
Uh, in the middle is the transportation average itself. So let's drill down and now for what it's worth this looks very uh, self-dealing as though I put this up here before but I don't know what J.B. Hunt earnings were going to be of course. Uh, don't like it and, and today's action will confirm that. What we have here is this. Yes, a well-defined downtrend line and for the most part it has failed, it has failed, it has failed at the line and we know it's going to happen tomorrow. It turns out it's going to fail again. So it's a bad one and I would stay away and truckers in general are not particularly good nor airlines. It's all about the rails, right? The rails have been the leader. It's a price-weighted index and this has so many ways you can draw the lines. One way, of course, is this. A little bit like the market itself, a head and shoulders with a well-defined neckline. You also could have a bigger formation, which is something of a cup and handle. But it all points to breakout time. And what we do know, of course, that NSC and UNP have already done it. I think this is the one to be in. And J.B. Hunt, despite being down in the open, if you own it, just get out. Carter, come on over. Evan will bring the chair over. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Evan. So. So you mentioned NSC and UNP have already broken out. How does KSU look? So, and I'm asking in the context of if there are border issues, this one right. is, is one that's vulnerable. So it's the, of, the, of the three, of the four big ones, right, it's the one that's lagged. It's got the Mexico exposure. And it has uh, just now returned to its high. So its picture, if you will, is just like the S&P, sell-off recovery, whereas all the others have cleared their former highs. Ultimately, I think uh, KSU is to be owned as well, but not as good as NSC, not as good as a CSX. Big fan, as you know, of your work, Carter Braxton. Oh, well, thank you and for as that. you also know, Chessie reports tomorrow after the close. You mentioned these double tops, basically 76 and a half, 77 last summer. We're trading there now. Would you rather, as a technician and trader, wait to see what they say tomorrow after the bell, try to buy the breakout, as opposed to trying to get in front of it during the day tomorrow? Good technique, which in principle safe technique, which is what money management really is about, is waiting. Right? Uh, most hedge funds do that. They'd rather gross it up after an earnings beat, they'll rather miss the move in Disney and then get involved because you risk the reciprocal, which is a miss and a drop in gap, uh, epic drop in gap often happens at tops, and then you've got that mess on your hands. So the prudent way to do it is to go after the results. It makes it even better. Even though you're paying up, it's a better business at that point. It's been validated. Um, if you have a little bit of courage, of course, you go before. Carter, weekly checkup on the S&P 500, the SPX. Now we're within, what, 1% of the prior all-time highs here. We had that 20% downdraft in the Q4. Now we're up, what, 23 24% from the highs. We're going to make a new high. What provides the torque to meaningfully break out of what was maybe a double top prior? Right. So I think it just gets down to the, the same old suspects, which is to say the super cap names, idiosyncratic growth names that are either going to push higher or not. So uh, we've heard from the banks. There's nothing more to be said now. Goldman didn't do very well. J.P. Morgan did. It's, out the, it's off the table. The big industrials, uh, they're not really working. Some are, some aren't. It's, it's really about healthcare struggling. Utilities can't move the needle. REITs can't move it. It is going to be about the super cap names that have driven the market. We know it's been the circumstance for now almost three years. Top five stocks bigger than the bottom uh, 250. So it's how Apple does. It's how Microsoft does. And they're all a little bit, in fact, uh, we just heard about it uh, from the strategist that it's all, they're all a little soft. They're all a little bit sort of lacking vigor. All right. Carter, good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. I think Carter was actually referring to Dan's MAGA. He was true. Just now. Really? I mean, and Carter's really? rarely lacking vigor, by the way, which is, which is great. So, um, so, you know, quickly, if you, if you look at the semis and if you look at the transports, they've been kind of the vehicles to ride on this way back. And frankly, um, 
as I would argue, at least until we see otherwise, these guys continue after a small pause today higher. All right. Still ahead, the unicorns are coming. Pinterest, the next in the stampede of private companies to go public this week, but with a $9 billion valuation. Is the company a value trade or value trap? Plus, hot socks getting baked on the back of Afria earnings, but one top analyst says, don't worry, can of bliss could be coming for the industry. She will be here to kick off our special lead week. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The countdown is on as Pinterest is expected to make its public debut this week. But will the social media company's price tag pack more of a punch than Wall Street's expecting? Leslie Pickers in EC with more on that story. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, Pinterest is seeking a $9 billion valuation in its IPO this week. Now investors are trying to decide, is that expensive or is it cheap? IPO values are decided on a relative basis. Investors will take Pinterest's multiple, in this case, enterprise value to forward sales and compare that with its peers in the market. Pinterest CV includes debt in its valuation but subtracts cash. Pinterest doesn't have direct peers. It's somewhat unique with a site that provides various how twos, decorative inspiration, and recipes, but its revenue is generated from ads, so investors are comparing its valuation to other ad-based models like Facebook, Snap, Twitter, and Google. This basket of search and social media companies trade on average around six times their projected 2020 revenue. Because Pinterest also enables users to buy things on its platform, investors are looking at a basket of e-commerce companies as well, such as Amazon, Alibaba, Farfetch, and Wayfair. These businesses trade closer to four times on average. When compared with both the ad basket and the e-commerce basket, Pinterest's IPO valuation actually looks more expensive at the midpoint. It's about eight times projected revenue. This might be surprising to some since the IPO valuation is actually cheaper than the $12 billion it was valued at in 2017 during Pinterest's last private round. Investors still seem willing to pay that premium to its publicly traded peers, though, because Pinterest's top-line growth is so strong relative to the more mature businesses in the baskets. Melissa. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker in the newsroom. So given all of that, is Pinterest looking like it'll be more of a value trade or a value trap? And this, uh, we're talking about this on a day when Lyft closes just yeah. above 56, 37% below its uh, all-time high. Well, I think you have to start this conversation that if recent history tells us anything, dating back to Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Alibaba, throw them all in there, Nobody has to go out and buy these on the first day. If you did not get IPO shares, that's just a fact, okay? Because none of them trade well afterwards. I think the interesting thing is this is a public down round if it does come at that thing. This company had $750 million in revenues last year and only lost $63 million. That's the biggest differentiator from all the other ones. So to me, I think there will be a price after this thing comes public. I think it is differentiated. They are going after a much bigger slice of the pie. Karen? I gotta think it's trappy. Just the, first of all, you know I have problems with some of our games, value trade or trap. A value trap is something that's super cheap, but could value. get cheaper. Oh, so she's right. really. I mean, she's really? Saying, yeah, she's yeah, it really misnomer. is. It's a bad you might want to game. No, it's like so cheap yeah. that it's attractive. Like a, two a trap is yes. attractive. Yes, really. Well, all right, we can get that's a all different. Right, that's all right. A, yeah. Anyway, I think it's a trap for the reasons you just said, Dan. Why do you need to jump in? Let, let's see how it trades. Good for them for doing a down round. I think that is absolutely the right way yeah. to go. Given some time, they do have that dual class structure, which isn't a problem until it's a problem. 
Um, but that's, that is not unique to them at all. I would wait. So I'd say trap. I uh, have to go trap, too. And I, I'm not going to start getting into the phonics. I, I thought this was the clearest game we have. Uh, it may be, but, but it's still playing it well. Not. We're playing it well. And, and as, as Dan pointed out, this is a company that actually is effectively sales are up 60% year over year. And the loss has actually come down to half of what it was as users have gone up by almost 100% in the last 18 months. Good for them. And good for them being in a space that actually uh, the online retailing internet ad model is interesting, but the multiple tough. I think you're the only person on this desk that has a Pinterest page. Stocking. I have I have a Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. you do? Yes, I do. Oh, wow. Yes. Little known fact. We have access my... to my, look at that. That's my Pinterest page. Tim's front and center. Right next to some, some uh, tanning God. butter. Yeah. That's uh, Melissa Dizzy? Lee. And is that Justin uh, is that Bieber? up there? Wow. I think. Bieber. I got Bieber. Got Bieber. Wow. Nice. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because. What's that of you in the middle? Oh, that's, that's the me. Iron Man. Yeah. What's interesting is Bieber is a fan. He asked me to put it on because he's watching tonight. Hey, JB, how you doing? <laughs> I'll say 60% revenue growth year over year is tremendous. 250 million users on their way to a billion. Thoughtful company. I say value trade, and I have a page. <laughs> Still ahead, it is Bravo. Weed Week here on Fast Money. Yep, we are bringing you the top pot plays all week long in honor of the 420 High Holiday. And tonight, one top analyst is here with what she says could give the entire cannabis space a major makeover. Plus, check out this hot stock sitting near its all-time high, but some traders are betting on a major spillover. We'll give you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are kicking off Lead Week here on Fast Money with one analyst who says a cannabis beauty boom is coming. Jeffrey is betting that the CBD beauty market will reach $25 billion in the next 10 years. That is a hefty 15% of the global skincare market. We've got Stephanie Wissink of Jeffrey's with us on set. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, is there proof that this stuff works? I, I spoke to the former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, last week, and he said the science isn't quite there in terms of some of the claims that might be made when it comes to CBD products, anti-wrinkle, anti-aging, things like that. Does that matter in your estimates? Well, the beauty of beauty is that it doesn't have to matter necessarily. It is a bit of magic potion in a bottle, and we know that some is scientifically validated, but not all. So I think to the degree that consumers are willing to give it a try and accept it, it could become something more meaningful more quickly. How much, though, should be in the valuation for the possibility that Science will show that there are some shortcomings to CBD. Um, he mentioned cumulative effects. So if you're ingesting CBD and putting it on your body, there isn't much research out there to show if you apply it in many different ways what the cumulative impact will be on your health. Yeah, that's something that we've started to look into more extensively is what if it's not just beauty, but what if it's part of a broader lifestyle? Um, so you may not be getting too much in your beauty product, but if you're consuming it in a vitamin, if you're using it in some other sorts of creams or products, or you may be even drinking it in a beverage, that maybe the cumulative effect or kind of the layering effect might be too much. Um, if it's just an isolated beauty product, and right now the majority of products on the market are hemp based. So it's, it's very, very low grade or even no grade uh, THC. So once we get into the true CBD side of beauty, I think it's gonna be something that more and more people are gonna think about is this kind of layering effect of how much I'm taking in. Stephanie, welcome, by the way, the second annual Weed Week on Fast Money. So great to have you to kick it off. And it seems like the natural next question is, what's going on with the multinationals, whether it's L'Oreal or Estee Lauder or LVMH? Or how, how do you anticipate the, the, these folks who will move the needle in terms of the valuation of the industry? Um, what's their strategy? Yeah, it's twofold right now. Now it's experimenting with some products within their core brands. And we see this at retail already. You'll see a one or two skew 
promotional package around some hemp-infused products. So they're really testing, flirting with the idea to see how consumers respond to it. And eventually, if it becomes serious enough, it's going to be an M&A strategy. That's what we've seen with most, multiple other areas of beauty is you test it, you validate it, and then ultimately, if you're committed to it, you go after one of the emerging brands that's really dedicated to it. So we all know that THC products are the real deal. There are a lot of regulatory issues. To me, it seems like CBD what and hemp is just like vaporware. Do you know what I'm saying? That we'll look back and say, it was nothing. It was just marketing. Is there a strong potential that that's the case in a few years? I think it d depends on how it develops medicinally. Ultimately, if we do see the pharmaceutical side validate the ultimate science, you're going to see the, the beauty companies adopt some of those same claims. And whether it's vapor or smoke and mirrors or whether it is actually legitimate, I think it's ultimately going to be something that we follow in the beauty industry from the pharmaceutical industry versus staking science and claims in beauty first. Uh, very much of a drafting effect off of what happens more broadly in the, the more medicinal and clinical areas. Do you have any pairings in mind when you're talking about, you know, large multinational or international beauty brands and what they should buy? Well, I think part of this comes down to where it starts. So right now, it's really the retailers. That's the best way to get exposure if this is an emerging trend. And we're thinking of this as an emerging trend in beauty, like we saw with K-beauty or mineral. It's starting. We're starting to see some consumer acceptance and curiosity. The social and search trends have been rising quite significantly. So there's interest, whether there's commitment just yet on the part of the big multinationals. We haven't seen any M&A activity. Uh, but it's something we're watching very closely. It's something that seems, when it happens, it happens fast. And so we know that there are many, multi, uh, many private companies kind of staging themselves, mm -hmm. multi-skew presentations at retails to be ready for when that happens. Right. Okay, Jennifer, great to speak with you. Thank you, Jennifer Witzink. Um, Karen, I want to go to you because you've looked at the beauty space before, and I'm wondering in, if in your mind there is one player that needs to make some sort of acquisition in order to be in on this. Uh, I mean, I don't think somebody like an Ulta or uh, they can, I think the they could sit side. and oh. wait. Is that what you mean on the retail side? Or no, like or an Estee Lauder or yeah, one of those brands. You know, I wonder if somebody like an Estee Lauder will have some pause about it for a while since it's not completely legal here. I don't know. I think they would wait and watch and they could get in later and, see. and pay more. Right. Although we've to. seen other big brand consumer brands jump yeah. in, right? Yeah. They, they have, and, and you know, if you want to think about where the multiple is going to come in this industry, it's consumer products, and those guys that can develop brands, the margins are high. Right. Well, as in case you didn't know, it's Weed Week right here on Fast Money. We're bringing in some of the industry's biggest experts to tell you what is next for the cannabis space, and that is all week long, so stay tuned. Coming up, it is the one stock trading year highs that traders are betting could see a huge move in the next few weeks. We'll tell you what it is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Options Action. Shares of Starbucks near all-time highs and one options traders betting on some big moves for the stock heading into earnings. Dan, break it down for us. Yeah, so like you said, Mel, the stock is at all-time highs. Um, today it made a new one. Um, it's up 18% of the year. It's up 60% from its 52-week lows. Um, options volume was about one and a half times average daily volume. Very interesting trade to see with the stock just kind of levitating up here when the stock was trading at 76 and a quarter. It was a buyer of 5,000 of the May 75, 77 and a half strangles, paying two dollars and 80 cents for that that is a volatility trade that trader is looking for a move below 72.20 or a move above 80.30 by may expiration the company will report earnings um, next week i think on the 25th here and so this is a strategy where obviously the trader thinks the stock's going to move they think that option prices are fairly cheap and look at that thing up there all the way to the upper right 
maybe playing for a move lower. All right, next we'll show of options action a week from Friday. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Here we talked about media, AT&T, some of the parts. Karen, yeah. Often a similar trade to Tim. I like media as well. I like CBS. I like it as a standalone, but I also think M&A could be in its future. Dan. Yeah, Bank of America is tomorrow morning. If that thing can't rally, I think the XLF is going to retest last month's lows. Gee. Looking forward to seeing on the squawk box tomorrow. You're there all week. All week this week. Hey, short week, squawk. though. Short week, though. Short week, yes, but it's tremendous the work you do. I'm proud of you. And has nothing to do with Tim or Karen, but Slumberger into earnings. I think it's breaking out to the upside. All right. That does it for us. Stay back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.